Well, good morning. It's nice to be back in Hamilton. The shearers, the young shearers, send their greetings to you. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians and the second chapter. And I'm reading from the ESV. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is God's Word. Paul's writing and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's just pray briefly. Father, thank you. We have the Bible in our own language. And thank you, as we gather here today, we're not alone. We thank you for your spirit among us. And we pray that as we look at this passage written hundreds of years ago, we pray that it will come alive as we've just been singing, as the Holy Spirit teaches us the truths of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I don't know when you last read the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe a wee while ago, but you will know that the preacher tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. That's how he puts it. And I would suggest to you that that's true, particularly when it comes to doing church. I don't like that expression, doing church, but that's the expression that's used today. And uh, that phrase can be particularly used with reference to doing church, as some people call it. There's nothing new under the sun. Some of the professing Christians in the church in Corinth ancient Greece, were arguing, quarrelling among themselves about all sorts of secondary issues, never mind the primary issues. They were debating, really, what should have been the undebatable, because the Bible is clear on that. But there was disunity in the camp, There was unnecessary division in the church. There was a personality cult. I like Paul and I like Apollos and I like Cephas. There was a personality cult. They were man-centered rather than God-centered. They were being sidetracked away from the main things and the plain things. In fact, they were behaving in a carnal way manner in Corinth. To put it bluntly, some of them were behaving like babies, but then, let's not be too hard on them, they were babies. This is the first generation of Christians ever in Corinth, and they're very young in years, and inexperienced, immature. But 2,000 years have passed, And what's happening in Corinth in the first century is happening in so many different places in the 21st century. God's people at loggerheads. Paul, in writing this letter, however, he wastes no time in putting his finger on the problems as he cuts to the chase to confront them. See, these young Christians... And I want to emphasize that again. They were very young. They had forgotten something very important. They needed to be reminded of it again. They needed to remember and consider afresh their own calling. How was it that they were Christians and so many other people around them weren't? They needed to remember their own calling. They had become Christians because God the Father had chosen them, called them. Not because they had chosen him, but because he had chosen them. What's Christianity all about? It's all about grace from start to finish. It's not about strange, otherworldly ideas that some people have got caught up in. It's not about, you know, a certain 
amount of people having strong religious convictions. It's not about personal theological preferences. It's about the clarity and authority of the word of God and the centrality and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Yes, it's about God the Father. Of course it is. But it's also about God the Son in terms of his person and his work all coupled to the absolute necessity of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. They needed to learn the basics. I remember, you know by the colour of my jersey, which team I support, by the way, but that's another story. They come from Glasgow. When I was a young football player, I also re- I used to support Liverpool. Forgive me for that. But they were at the top in Europe for years. And I remember the manager at the time, Bill Shankly, being interviewed on television. And he was asked the question, why is it that your team is able to be at the top all these years? Shankly's reply was simple. Well, it's just because they do the basics well. They had some great players. Good, better, and best. They had some great players. But they all did the basics well. And that was the problem in Corinth. They hadn't learned to do the basics well. Listen to what Paul said to them. Chapter 1. He said this to them Consider your calling, brothers. Taking them back a wee bit. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose who is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He went on and he said, and because of him, underline it in your Bible, because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. They'd forgotten that. They needed to learn that. Because the earthly wisdom of this world and the heavenly wisdom of God and his word are infinitely different. They are poles apart. They stand in complete contrast to one another. And then he goes on into chapter 2, and that's where I want you to come with me this morning. He wants to explain to them. He wants to expound to them. He wants to enlighten and educate these first century, first generation young Christians with regards to the absolute essential ministry of God the Holy Spirit. 
the third person of the Holy Trinity, in terms of them becoming genuine Christians and in terms of them growing up to be mature Christians. And there are three things I want to draw your attention to in chapter 2, but focusing mainly in on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What is revival? Is it not God tearing the heavens apart and coming down by his Spirit and reviving his people? Well, here's Paul writing to these Corinthians, and he's putting it in very simple terms at the most basic of levels. Three ministries of the Holy Spirit. Here's the first one. He talks about the Holy Spirit and preaching. And he's speaking of himself, of course, as he does this, as well as other people who preach. The Holy Spirit and preaching. In the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul tells us that when he came to Corinth, he didn't come as a philosopher. Remember, we're in ancient Greece. He didn't come as a philosopher. He came as a preacher. And what did he come with? He came with the gospel message. He didn't come as a clever academic. He didn't come determined to blow their minds with his knowledge. He didn't come to go on intellectual flights of human rhetoric and oratory. He didn't come to make a name for himself. Of all the people the Apostle Paul had brains as big as Birmingham, we would say. But he came to them with a very simple and with a very profound message that made people wise unto salvation. He didn't come as the philosopher, as Bunyan would put it in Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He didn't come in those shoes. He didn't come as a philosopher. He didn't come with the latest insights into some new kind of human philosophy. Actually, when he came, he felt himself unequal to the magnitude of the task because he came as a preacher of God's gospel. How awesome is that? How would any of us in this building love for God to Put, single us out and say, now, I want you, here's my message, I want you go, to go and tell people down at the bottom of Hamilton Cross, tell them this message. No wonder he felt weak at the knees. What was the message? Jesus Christ and him crucified. What? We're philosophers here. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The message was preaching. The message was Jesus nailed to a cross. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century American great preacher, he said this, the gospel was not a plant of native growth. Christianity is not a mere natural development of the ancient world. It's a new supernatural beginning. 
Now, when Paul says he came and he wanted to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it doesn't mean that he preached on the equivalent of John 3, verse 16, every time he was called to preach. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. No, he loved that message and he preached that message. But when he came, we are told elsewhere that he preached the whole counsel of God wherever he went. But he made sure that the death and resurrection of Jesus was always at the heart of it. That's why he openly tells us how he felt when he came into the city to preach to them. He says, I was with you in weakness, verse 3, and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message was not in plausible words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now listen, it's not that the apostle Paul was afraid of people's faces or afraid of being martyred. No, not at all. He just didn't want to make a horlicks of the situation. God, almighty God, had given him this message, and he must preach it clearly and simply to the people. You know, there are some people who think Paul is talking a wee bit like this here because he was a failure when he visited Athens just earlier preaching to the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, you remember in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. People say he was a failure, that's why he's coming to give this wee simple message. No, no. You read the story of Paul preaching in Athens in Acts 17, and one thing is sure, his visit to Athens was anything but a failure. There were people converted there. Several people were wonderfully saved. But what the Apostle Paul is doing in this chapter here, in these opening verses, he's telling us and he's describing for us how he preached everywhere he went, in Asia Minor, the Middle East, Europe, the world of his day, Athens, Corinth, it didn't really make any difference. He's telling us how he preached, and he's telling us what he preached in all those different places. The message he preached was that of Christ dying for our sins and then conquering death through his resurrection. It's a message that was, is, and always will be a message of foolishness to those embalmed with the wisdom of this world, but to those who believe with a God-given faith in the wisdom of God, this message, and only this message, is the power of God. Paul is telling us that this is the message the Holy Spirit has given the church to preach to the world. This is the message that is the power of God unto salvation. This is the message that Paul came to preach relying solely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Read those five verses. He cries out, when I came to you, I didn't come some fancy great philosopher. No, I came to tell you about Jesus and him crucified. And I wanted it to be a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He came relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got a new pastor coming. And he's a good one. I want to give you just a wee word of wise counsel. Pray for him as you've never prayed before. Pray that as he stands up here at this pulpit. He will know that you have prayed for him that he might know the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and pray for everybody who comes within these walls. Yes, you want the preacher when he's preaching not just to be coming out with words, but coming out with words empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you want the hearers to hear what he's saying and for their lives to be changed. That's what Paul's telling us here in this passage. He prays and he asks that the preachers in their preaching and the hearers in their hearing will begin to understand what Jesus Christ and him crucified is all about. He wants people to be so wrought upon by the Holy Spirit that they'll be born again. He wants people to be so wrought upon by the Holy Spirit that they'll just want to live a holy life. Paul wrote to Titus and he spoke about the washing of regeneration. So many people today, I could write a book, who've made decisions along the way. And I look to see where are the signs of regeneration, a new birth, a hunger to live for the glory of God, a desire to live a holy life. And sometimes you have to look very carefully before you find it. When the prophets of the Old Testament preached, they preached with the power of the Holy Spirit. When the New Testament apostles preached, they preached with the power of the Holy Spirit. Saving faith in God the Son is really a trust in the Lord that comes into people's lives through the all-powerful activity of God the Holy Spirit, making the people adopted children of God the Father with the full rights of sons and daughters, seeing to it that the darkness is not only removed from their lives, but it's replaced in their lives by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I can hear Duncan Campbell. I sat under him for a number of years in Edinburgh. I was a young Christian. When he started to speak of revival, his whole body felt the power of it as he was talking about it. We need God, the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon, let me finish the first point on him. He says, the power that is in the gospel doesn't lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach, he says, until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it power to convert the soul. Think about that. When I came, he says, my message, Jesus and him crucified. Is that it? At heart, that's it. That is the power of God. The philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they would look at it. The Jews and the Greeks, it's a stumbling block. It's an offence. It's absolute nonsense. Somebody nailed to a tree Nails through his hands, 
nails through his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, and a spear thrust into his side. You're telling me that that's the power of God to save a man from his sins and take him to heaven? Yes. And there's no other message. Here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit in preaching, and he includes himself in that we stretch there one through five. But here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit and understanding. He's speaking here, you know, people who are on the fringe, they're maybe interested, they're maybe not. But the newcomers, they want to hear, what's this guy got to say? Don't forget that the Christians are young, first century, first generation Christians. It was early days for them in terms of knowing the basics of the gospel. He wants them to know that the gospel is not some kind of afterthought. It's God's divinely thought out plan from before the foundation of the world. And as Paul's pen moves on here in chapter 2 to verse 6 and 7 and on, he makes it clear that in preaching the gospel, he's not in the business of seeking to impart some kind of newly discovered earthly wisdom. Human wisdom, he calls it. The, The wisdom of this age, a thousand times no. Well, he wants to be up to date with all that's going on, but he's not embracing the wisdom of the world. He wants them to grow up. He wants them to enter more and more into the secret, hidden wisdom of God, as he calls it. He wants them to grow up into tasting more and more heavenly wisdom, eternal wisdom, God's wisdom. And he's quick to make it clear in verse 8 that none of, listen to this, none of the rulers of this age or of any other age for that matter can understand what God who created the heavens and the earth in the beginning is doing at that particular time. Let that sink in. On the stage of human history, none of the rulers of this age could understand what God was doing. If they had understood, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, he says. You remember that Jesus powerfully underlined that truth when he said of those who were about to crucify him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I've often thought about that. They don't know what they're doing. They're taking a man. There's a wooden cross there. They're putting nails in his hands. They're putting nails in his feet. The crown of thorns is on his head. They're going to put a spear into his side. They're going to lift. They don't know what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? They didn't know who he was. Who he really was. And they didn't know the implications of what they were doing. In that sense. And it's not because they're spiritually blind. It's not because they're spiritually deaf. It's not because they're spiritually sick. It's because they're spiritually dead. And have been since birth. They can't see. I wonder, has this really gripped us? People cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot understand what God is saying, what God is doing. They cannot 
possibly personally grasp what God has revealed in the Bible unless something wonderfully supernatural and absolutely miraculous happens to them. That is exactly what happens when someone becomes a Christian, isn't it? They see the truth for the first time. I can remember it as a 19-year-old. Gobbledygook. Until somebody took me apart, prayed for me, showed me the steps. And suddenly, I I came little by little, I could see it. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is an infinite gap between what is natural and what is spiritual. No amount of diligent study of or human reasoning, or intellectual talent, or philosophical know-how on its own can understand or can unravel what this book is teaching. You can read it year on year if you so will. You can read it from cover to cover many times over and yet not understand the ABCs of this message. Never mind understand the deep things of God. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can open the eyes of our understanding. Just a few months ago, I read the biography of William Wilberforce, the man who spent his life seeking to abolish slavery. You'll know the story well. Late 18th, early 19th century. His great friend, of course, was another William, William Pitt the Younger, and he became Prime Minister, did Pitt, when he was only 24 years of age. The pair of them had studied at Cambridge. They had sharp, sharp minds, the pair of them. Wilberforce had become a Christian, and he really was concerned for William Pitt. And he asked him if he would come and hear one of the greatest preachers in England at the present time, and it was a man called Richard Cecil. So you can see Wilberforce taking Pitt, the Prime Minister, into this service. After the service was over, Wilberforce is coming out and he's on fire. He's on fire. He's ready to take the world on. And he turns to Pitt. And Pitt looks at him and says to him, You know Wilberforce? I listened hard to what that man was saying. But I haven't the slightest idea what he was talking about. He's been to Cambridge. He's the Prime Minister. And he hasn't got a clue. Only God the Holy Spirit can open the eyes of anybody's understanding. That's what Paul, he's repeating it, he's saying it, he wants them to catch this. Paul's writing to these young Christians, young and experienced. He's writing to people who've experienced this supernatural miracle, but they're babes. He's writing to real Christians, to people who've been truly born again of the Spirit of God. But he's writing against the background of some of them bringing disgrace upon the church with their divisive behavior. But he he wants to get this across to them, quoting from the NIV here. No eye has seen. We believe the Bible, don't we? Listen to this. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. 
The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We haven't received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Say, I believe that. Okay, I believe that too but see if we really believed it if we really believed it we would be queuing up at the prayer meeting every week to pray for the lost. Some of them your relatives your neighbours your friends. Only the Spirit of God can give somebody understanding. Leon Morris sums it up in a sentence when he says, the Holy Spirit who reveals is truly God. And what he reveals is the truth of God. Do you know, we should be so humbled at that thought for Christians here this morning. So privileged. We've heard God's call. God has spoken to you and to me. We should be broken and contrite as we stand in awe at his amazing grace towards us. God the Father, and I'm not being controversial, it's in the Bible. God the Father chose us. God the Son came to save us. God the Holy Spirit indwells us, banishing the darkness, giving us this marvelous light. I know that when people from a pagan background, because I came from that background, when they become Christians, they need time for their heads to catch up with their hearts. They need to be instructed and discipled from ground zero and led on step by step to maturity. This understanding, it doesn't come in all its totality overnight because we're on a journey. We're a people in progress. The Holy Spirit is the only one who alone who can give understanding spoke to me powerfully just a couple of weeks ago do I really believe that? Do I think I can convince them with my words? The Holy Spirit in prayer he's laying it out simple for these believers in Corinth the Holy Spirit in people coming to understand he's laying it out for them you can be the greatest orator on planet earth Nothing will happen unless the Holy Spirit comes and does his work. And one final thing. The Holy Spirit and living. As Paul comes towards the end of the chapter, particularly with his focus, his emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, he tells us that the spiritual man stands out as someone who is totally, fundamentally different from the natural man. He sees what the natural man can't see. The Holy Spirit is giving him insight, giving him discernment, giving him understanding. Think again. To the Jews, the gospel of Christ and him crucified was utterly offensive. It was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, with all their philosophy, it was complete and utter nonsense. 
foolishness. They just could not see how this message could be God's mighty power. The God who put the stars in space, that can't be his mighty power when I look at that cross there. But that's the wisdom of God. To those who believe, no matter what their background, to those in whose lives God the Holy Spirit is working to bring a new birth and a new life, that's the way it is. And he goes on to say, just a wee phrase at the end, can you believe this? He says, because of what God has done for you in Christ, because he has come to you and given you understanding, you have the mind of Christ. Wow. We have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? doesn't mean that we're able to understand everything. Of course not. Jesus is God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, as Deuteronomy tells us. But it does mean that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we know this Jesus, in whom dwells all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have access to this Jesus, in whom are all the spiritual blessings and all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. We have access to such a degree, as we read our Bible and pray every day, what he thinks, what he's saying, what he's doing, we can begin to think, we can begin to say, and we can begin to be involved in doing. We don't know the thoughts of God, but God the Holy Spirit has complete knowledge of all the thoughts of God and all the things of God. When God comes into your life, the text I was given by Archie Ferguson from Cleland, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he'll carry it on to completion. He comes in and degree by degree, little by little. So you're in your 80s now, John, but keep on going. You haven't reached the shore yet. Keep on going. God wants to give us more and more and more. He's preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth. When this happens, how can I put this? You'll begin to live a life believing that it's more blessed to give than to receive. A Scotsman? It's more blessed to give than to receive? You'll begin to life, live a life of obedience. You'll begin to live a life of holiness. You'll begin to live a life of loving other people, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, living in such a way that your actions and your attitudes and your aspirations are like that of Jesus as you humbly walk through this wilderness of a world under the shadow of the Almighty. And there will never be, ever, in Hamilton, in Musselboro, anywhere, division. People at one another's throats. We're going to sing this hymn. I'll just read it to you first, if I may. 
May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of Christ dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Pray that it will be real in all the preaching that you'll get from this pulpit for the preacher and for the hearers. Pray that anybody who comes in through these doors or anybody you touch going out through those doors, they will begin to get an understanding as you depend on the Holy Spirit to convey the truth of God to their hearts and minds. And pray that when it comes to living, you have the mind of Christ. That's the challenge. We're going to sing that hymn. And thanks to Romy for keeping us in good tune. We'll sing the hymn together. May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me from day to day.